we are past Memorial Day, and that means two things, barbecue season and software season. Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC, kicks off Monday. It's an event where Apple gathers engineers from everywhere to announce its vision for the future of software and answer their questions about how to make today's apps work better. Well, who cares? Well, if you use an iPhone, iPad, Mac, you're probably getting new software out of WWDC, even if you don't buy a new device. And if you're a tech watcher, you get some hints about what's coming in the next generations of iPhones, iPads, and more. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. And joining me to talk Apple, tech, labor, and more, I've got the father of tech reviews, a pioneer in tech journalism, Walt Mossberg. Walt, great to see you. John, it's always great to see you. Well, a lot of proverbial ink has been spelled already about what to expect from iOS 13. I know you're technically retired now, but I suspect you can't resist uh, pouring through it all and, and having your own ideas. What do you think the major takeaway is going to be and Apple really needs to achieve with this announcement? Well, I think actually the most important thing that I'm looking for at WWDC isn't a feature of iOS 13. It's this uh, initiative to put iPad apps on the Mac, mm. uh, iOS apps on the Mac, which is called codename Marzipan, which they announced last year but uh, aren't putting in place for developers until this year. I think it's a really important, interesting move because most of the developer activity uh, in recent years has been on iOS and not mm -hmm. on Mac. And so to get more apps and better apps on Mac, uh, they need to get developers a, a, an easy way to move their iOS apps over. I wonder how you think that's going to happen, because I wasn't sure whether to think of that as an iOS 13 feature, uh, a Mac feature, or, or a bit of both, because there's talk about being able to use iPads as Mac monitors in the, in the future right. and having uh, a mouse be able to work and an iPad. It seems like you'd need both things to be able to happen if you wanted to really merge those two worlds. I agree. Here's how I would look at it. I think Apple considers it a Mac feature because these apps are appearing on the Mac, at least in the first instance, and it's a multi-year thing. I think they've said it won't be all done until uh, uh, 2021, but um, uh, I also think it has many implications. Lots of people love their and have gotten used to their uh, uh, iOS style of app. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there will be, a, if, they, if this thing works right and the developers do a good job, uh, there will be, I think, uh, a great interest in seeing more merging of the, of the uses of the platforms than we've seen before. Apple has said they're not merging the OSs, right. and they remain opposed to a touchscreen Mac. Do you think they're right about that? I mean, because Tim Cook famously said, well, maybe famously to guys like you and me, the refrigerator toaster thing, about how you don't want to bring these things together. And at the time, I think Microsoft was still wrestling with Windows 8. Right. It really Mike looked like it wasn't going to work. But then Microsoft seems to have kind of figured it out. Well, they figured it out, but it is not. I mean, most studies show that people who buy touchscreen laptops wind up not using the touchscreen feature nearly as much as you would expect. Mm -hmm. They still use the, the touchpad on the keyboard and, and keyboard shortcuts and arrows and stuff like that. Um, so that is not, uh, to me, the most exciting possibility. 
Most the more exciting possibility to me is that this kind of uh, fusion of the apps will eventually somehow lead them to do a clamshell iPad because the iPad apps will become uh, more sophisticated uh, because they'll now be apps expected to live up to what you would find on a Mac and it would be a natural thing to just... What's a clamshell iPad? Yeah, with a keyboard built right in. In other words, not a snap-on keyboard, not a fabric keyboard, but a real keyboard. But isn't that just what we just said that Apple didn't want to do? I mean, don't you end up then having a laptop with a touchscreen? Isn't that essentially what you it is? You do. You do. And I know <laughs> it's a little bit, sounds a little bit contradictory, but um, I know that I would use it um, and uh, in a way that I might not use a touchscreen Mac. I can't explain it. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just because I'm so used to using the touchscreen on the iPad. That's attention but, but, for but, me. Like but on, anyway, on to side, me, that's... That's the most interesting thing at WWDC. It is interesting, and, and that's the tension for me, is on the one side, you've got the simplicity of iOS, of the iPhone and the iPad, and I keep running up against, though, things that are complicated that I can't do on that platform that I wish I could. And then, on the other hand, you've got these PC platforms, the Mac, Windows 10, etc. Sometimes it can just be too, feel too complicated. You want to bring them both together. Apple said on the one hand, they don't want to bring them both together, but then on the other hand, it seems like they kind of do. Uh, we'll see, I guess, how they work that out. A few, a few rumored features, I, I wonder how you feel about. One is more complicated Siri. Just being able to, to give Siri commands that actually work deeply in more different kinds of third-party apps playing songs, not just in Apple Music, but in Spotify, other places. You think that's coming? You think it's needed? I think it is, it is coming, and I think uh, it started with the, the shortcuts thing they introduced mm -hmm. last year, which um, uh, I don't think has picked up a lot of speed, but uh, it's more of a bleeding-edge techie thing. But yes, I think Siri needs more versatility. Uh, I have to say it's still... Dumb, but it's not. <laughs> but it's not nearly as dumb as it was even two years ago. I think it's made a lot of progress. But we've uh, been burned before, haven't we? I, I find myself having very have. low expectations of what I ask Siri. Simple arithmetic. I'm shocked if she can do. You know, even tell me how many days it's been since some date in the past. I'm like, oh, Siri, good job. I know. That's right. <laughs> they lowered your expectations, and now you're now you're kind of intrigued by it. So, again, like you were maybe at the very beginning. So I, I think, um, uh, I do think one thing they can do without violating privacy or getting into any of the territory they don't want to get into is just what you said. Uh, give, it, give it more variability and, and more capability. I want to talk labor now. Let's move on to talk a bit about Silicon Valley's shadow workforce. A report in the New York Times noting that as of March, Google has more temporary workers, contractors around the world, than full-time employees, workers who make less money and receive fewer benefits than full-time employees. It's not just a Google thing. This is endemic across a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And Walt, it, it seems to me we used to talk about the, the stratification effects that tech created kind of the tech workers, say, in Silicon Valley versus the, the manufacturing workers in another country or the logistics workers who are packing the boxes and shipping them. But more and more, it seems like as Facebook, Google, others expand, there are white-collar jobs that they're contracting out that are, that are yet another tier of labor underneath the more moneyed engineering class. Why do you think that is, and do you think it's sustainable? 
I think it's greed. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's putting short term over long term. And I think long term it becomes really problematic. And I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something you don't know about me, John. Okay. I spent five years as the Wall Street Journal's chief labor correspondent a long time ago before I was doing tech. I, I did know, not know that. I, I knew know about a little. The, the intelligence. I did that, that stuff did. too, yeah. I want to talk about that soon too, <laughs> but I didn't know about the labor stuff. Yeah, so here's what I think. Obviously, organized labor is, has gone way down in the last 50 years, but it's coming back up. I think it's been widely reported. Uh, you can see even uh, uh, digital media companies getting unionized. And I mm -hmm. think what's, what they are, are asking for by doing this in, in Silicon Valley is unionization. They're going to get unionization. I, I won't, can't predict to you. I don't think it'll be easy. I don't think it'll be immediate. But I think it'll be sooner than people had thought, which was really never. I, I think some, it, I don't know if it'll be Google, but eventually it'll be somebody who, where these workers are going to say, we're doing the job of full-time employees and we need representation because we want benefits and we well, want... It's, tr uh, it's trickle-down economics, wages. isn't it? I mean, it, it, there was this dream, this idea, in, certainly when I arrived in, in Silicon Valley 20 years ago, that if you join the right company, even if you don't have the, the greatest amount of skills, even if you're a secretary, you join the right startup, you put in the work, you get stock options, you too can be a multimillionaire. But it seems like the deal has changed. Uh, th those are temps now. Or they're not handing out stock options like they used to, and even if no, you they do don't, make right. a good, or they're not going public, right? So, well, so well, the and they don't even, apart. and they don't even work for these companies <laughs> which have the stock and the stock options. The, 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 they're called you. You call them temps. I know the uh, article recently. The, in, I guess the Times called them temps. Yeah. But but they're contractors, and they t tend to work for a contracting company that. They're not even actually employed in any way by Google or Facebook or whoever they work for. So uh, there's no way for them to get stock options from Google or, or Facebook or whatever it is. So you're absolutely right. I think you, you uh, said it perfectly. That dream is gone. It was true that janitors and secretaries at one time could actually uh, uh, get much richer uh, when companies went public, or e even with with uh, other kinds of benefits, this is this is something that I think will not, cannot continue. Yeah. Even even just in a management point of view, if you have to manage more than half of your workforce in a different way and uh, manage the comp the subcontractors, yeah. it's. It's a whole different game. And, and that's when the, the blue-collar segment of the tech workforce could even afford to live in Silicon Valley because the, the prices hadn't skyrocketed in the South Bay, across the peninsula, you know, Menlo Park, East Palo Alto, et cetera, the big gentrification effects. It's even harder. Uh, Walt, uh, point well taken. Uh, once again, this is Fort Knox. Joining me uh, this week, Walt Mossberg, legend. And now we're going to move on. Time to get those digits, Walt. Here are a few numbers that have caught my eye this week in tech. Siri's got the first. Siri. 923,000. All right, 923,000. That's the minimum number of devices still vulnerable to attacks involving the blue keep flaw. And right. Walt, um, 
you cover this stuff, you know, not just from the device security standpoint, but also this is interesting from the intelligence perspective. There was another piece out just a few days ago about how tools that the NSA developed to crack into systems got loose in the wild and now are being used against U.S. interests. I wonder your take on this. To what degree is this like that Cold War phenomenon we saw where the U.S. government would train rebels in this area or that, uh, you know, because they were against communism. Then they turned out not to be such great people and they turned into problems for us. Is that happening again, but on a tech level? Well, and they, and they used our, our anti-aircraft missiles against us. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, it's very, it's very analogous to that. Uh, although in this case, as my understanding is, it was a theft and not something we gave to somebody. But uh, the point is, uh, there's a new kind of malware out there. Uh, Blue Keep is an example, but there are others. Uh, and uh, it, it basically, the, 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 most, the scariest one that I can think of is ransomware, which is running wild. Uh, the whole city of Baltimore, as we speak, is uh, under a ransomware attack, and large parts of the city government's computer systems and the services they provide through those systems are, are locked up. Yeah. C city can't get to them, so uh, they've gone back to pencil and paper. Paper. They've gone to, you know, jerry-rigged uh, 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 home computers uh, situations, and these uh, criminals know that municipal governments are a great place to look for vulnerabilities because, yeah. they, first of all, they use Windows, so if they can find a Windows flaw, that gets them. And secondly, they're usually, they don't keep their security up to date. They have old software, they have old computers. They're a perfect target. So here's a question. Uh, the story about this over the weekend also mentioned an instance where uh, the, the government used something against China, and China was able to capture the code of the attack and right. retain it uh, and, and use it then as a weapon. So in a way, we did give it to them. It wasn't exactly stolen. We sort of you know, got disarmed, it sounded like. But yeah. to, to what degree uh, should the, the U.S. or governments in general change the way they think about developing attacks based on these flaws. Microsoft is arguing, hey, you got to tell us about this stuff uh, once you discover it so that we can patch and, and make systems secure. I, governments, well, of course, argue very... they still need to be able to execute these attacks for national security. Yeah, it's a very tricky thing. Look, the NSA uh, uh, doesn't talk to many people uh, and doesn't like to let anyone know what it's doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most secretive it, it makes the CIA look like CNBC. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. And, and, but it's under, also understandable. I mean, if they're going to actually be able to find out through cyber what's going on in Iran or China or, or with uh, terrorist groups here in the U.S., uh, they can't be, they can't be uh, publicizing it. And even telling Microsoft, somebody notices Microsoft is, is fixing a flaw that harms the ability for the weapon to be used. So I don't have the answer. It's very complicated. I guess one answer, just to be, uh, uh, you know, superficial about it, would be just to say, don't let your stuff be, be stolen or reverse engineered. Try and figure out a way to stop that. And I'm sure they, they're already on it. Yeah. But, but um, that's, they can't stop doing cyber warfare now and cyber intelligence because it's crucial. 
and keep installing those Windows updates, people. Well, we might not have all the answers, but we do have another digit. Siri? $17.5 billion. $17.5 billion. That's the least amount that Mackenzie Bezos has pledged to donate uh, to philanthropy after right. she signed the giving pledge this week, a commitment, of course, to give half of her fortune away over the course of her lifetime. Of course, that number could change as the value of Amazon stock changes up or down. You never know. But, Walt, this is interesting to me because Jeff Bezos, when uh, Mackenzie and Jeff Bezos were together, wasn't very public about philanthropy, unlike other billionaires, and uh, has only just begun to talk publicly about ways he wants to spend that money philanthropically. Steve Jobs, who, who you knew very well, also didn't talk a lot about his giving. Is that changing? Um, I, I hope it's changing. Uh, Mackenzie Bezos is an extraordinary person, and I, and I think it's wonderful that she's done this. I would point out that, that the giving pledge, which was started by uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett, is not mandatory. But I think people, I know several people who have, who have uh, pledged uh, to do this, and I think they mean it, uh, whether it's mandatory or not. So kudos to her. As far as Jeff Bezos goes, uh, you know, since I retired, I've gotten uh, involved in raising money uh, for a uh, nonprofit called the News Literacy Project. Mm -hmm. and, and Jeff Bezos, uh, my, uh, after I asked him, actually had, did make a very generous donation to us, but didn't, pub, uh, didn't publicize it. I mean, we, we, he gave us permission to publicize it, uh, but he didn't say a word about it. So that may be just his style and his way of thinking about these things. Right. Um, uh, Apple just gave us uh, a... Uh, a, a sig very significant donation from our point of view or the biggest corporate uh, contribution we've ever gotten and the second biggest donation of any kind we've ever gotten. And they refused to, to specify the amount and they wouldn't let us specify the amount pub publicly. So these, some of these uh, uh, tech uh, 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 companies and people have different attitudes mm. about how they do their philanthropy. But I think it is beginning to change, and um, I hope so, because uh, the amount of wealth that, that's been created and concentrated in tech needs now to be paid back into society. Is the, is the modesty always real, I wonder? There's a story about Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, turning down a higher salary uh, years ago because he felt like he had enough com compensation. We say that. In the same show where we were talking about Google's use of temp workers who are underpaid and uh, underbenefited. Um, so, so how do we have a world of one and the other? And of course, uh, Jeff Bezos' Amazon has been criticized for the working conditions in warehouses. Yes, it, it's good to be uh, generous and quiet about it, but is there something more at work here? Well, I don't, I don't think philanthropy, as much as it's, uh, it's important, and it is, I don't think philanthropy uh, covers all the sins of, of the business model, mm. of, the, of the way the company runs. And, and so, uh, you know, Google also gives money for things like news literacy and, 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 and not to our organization, but to other people doing it. And, uh, uh, and yet, as we said, there are a lot of people uh, not getting a fair shake there as employees compared yeah. to the normal employees. So uh, I don't think it... it it answers everything. I think, I think uh, there needs to be a bottom-up look at the, 
at the way the wealth the company and the industry accumulates is distributed, even within the industry itself, yeah. and then, of course, to the whole society. All right, Siri, last digit. 1,414 days. 1,414 days. Well, that's how many days it's been since Apple last updated the iPod Touch. Uh, <laughs> it, it put out a press release uh, just hours ago, days ago, saying, yeah, yeah there, there's some new chips in the iPod Touch. It'll have AI capabil AR uh, capabilities now. Right. Um, I remember when this thing was hot, Walt, and I, I still think it could be even hotter than it is. Why are they dissing the iPod Touch? Uh, I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. Uh, they must have come to the conclusion that there's a ceiling on just how much hotter it can get and that it isn't worth whatever effort they're putting into either the products we know about or the products we don't know about yet. Uh, that's my, my only conclusion. Um, I, I'm kind of glad they've kept it around, to be honest, and uh, glad that they gave it a, a little bump. Um, uh, because it's really essentially an iPhone without uh, cellular capability. You can, mm -hmm. even make, you can even make audio calls on it over the, over the web, so it can do that. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't know it exists anymore and, and don't know much about it. So I, kind of, I agree with you. If they did some ads, they could probably sell <laughs> 10 times whatever they're selling of it. But 10 times whatever they're selling of it may not be in a company that size worth it. Yeah, I remember, as you do, when they were struggling a lot harder than they are now. All right, Fort Knox with Walt Mossberg. Shifting gears again, time now for Hard Knocks. Uh, some people and companies not having the greatest week. First up, Facebook getting really hammered this week for keeping a doctored oh, video man. of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi up on its platform. And Walt... For me, for me, it's not so much the issue of the video being up on the platform. It's the fact that Facebook doesn't have a special space for vetted content, like where news organizations have agreed to follow certain rules, and if they post something that's edited in a false sort of way or creates the wrong kind of impression, then there are penalties. At least then people know, all right, I'm looking at something where somebody's got something on the line. Well, I, I consider you a softy, John, on that. <laughs> uh, I think there's zero excuse, zero, for them to not have immediately taken down a known doctored piece of information. And by the way, I want to be clear, this has got nothing to do with politics. Mm -hmm. if, if this had been a doctored video meant to look, uh, to make President Trump look drunk or... or mentally impaired or something, I would feel exactly the same way. If you know it's doctored or you know it's false or you know it's a hoax, you know it. You know it's a hoax. You need to get your hands dirty. You need to curate your platform and get rid of it. But what, Jeff, what about that What about that Jordan Peele created, intentionally created deep fake uh, I know. of President Obama? Like, should, should there, would that rule cover that as well? Or is it really no. more about context no, because where if you say that it's parody or if, you don't try, if you're not trying to make people think that it's completely that, real legitimate news, then, then that's the real issue more than the content itself? Look, there's a lot of gray areas here. This Nancy Pelosi thing wasn't anywhere near a gray area. It was, it was black and white. It was plain that Facebook has admitted it knew it was doctored and just refused to take it down. The yeah. Jordan Peele one, as you will remember, 
was actually meant to demonstrate what you can do with a deep fake. And it showed Jordan Peele, at least the version I saw, showed Jordan Peele doing, uh, doing the voice. And it was meant as an edu- kind of almost an educational uh, video. I, that, to me, that's not, that doesn't fall into this at all. But look, Facebook is, is the world's biggest publisher of news and information, both real and fake. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a media company, regardless of what it says. I think they're desperately afraid of, of somehow no longer being covered by the famous Section 230 of the, of the uh, Federal Communications Laws passed in 1996, which yeah. is basically a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, at a time when nothing like Facebook could have been uh, imagined. Yeah, They're we barely had web browsers, Walt, 1996. My that, goodness. That's right. So, <laughs> so I think, I think uh, and, and, and I, I just don't think the company uh, uh, acts on any principles at all. And it's, uh, it, I'm, you know, as you know, I quit. I'm gone from there. And all, all yeah. of their other properties, because I don't think the company is uh, worth participating in. Well, let's keep it controversial, shall we? Next hard knock, potentially for Georgia, Netflix weighing in on the controversy, uh, the controversial abortion law that is possibly going through in Georgia, saying it would pull production or consider it should the state pass that legislation. Walt, an interesting dynamic here. We, we remember what happened with uh, North Carolina, the yeah. bathroom bill. Now we have this looming. Netflix is the only company that's really come forth and said much about it. I wonder the degree to which tech becomes a player here in politics or whether it, there's some risk of a slippery slope of them getting involved sometimes and not others. Uh, I think tech is already a player in politics and has been for a little while now. Uh, there are, uh, and they're not all liberals. There's a lot of libertarians in Silicon Valley, and there's obviously also some conservatives. But uh, once you get more than around a uh, hundred million dollars in in Silicon Valley, you often turn into a libertarian. I've noticed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what I think about the these uh, uh, heartbeat abortion laws is that you know we have. Uh, the law of the land in this country is that you're, you're entitled to get an abortion. Uh, uh, and uh, there are some uh, opportunities to uh, regulate it and constrain it, but by and large, you're entitled to get an abortion. And these heartbeat bills are quite obviously, and the people who, who propose them say this uh, in many cases, they're looking to get a reversal at the Supreme Court by having this challenge. They're all being going to be challenged right. and go to the Supreme Court. Uh, I think if you employ people uh, who feel like the law of the land ought to be upheld, uh, you run into a problem if you're filming in a state that has done that. Whether Especially it's abortion, in media, right, where you've got uh, actors who, who often tend to, to lean left, to say the least. And, hey, if the, if the lead actor pulls out of a project, that can kill the whole project. And you have viewers, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if the Supreme Court changes its mind or the Congress does something, the law of the land changes, things may be different. But right now, uh, I think Ted Sarandos at, at Netflix did the right thing by making the statement he, he made. I think he's, in a, in a way, by saying, we'll, we'll keep filming in Georgia 
until the lo- this thing goes into effect, if it ever does, and he's he's kind of saying to Georgia, you still have an opportunity if you don't want to lose our business yeah. to uh, go another way. I uh, I think we all have to watch the other studio we all studios we have to watch Amazon and and Disney and and uh, everyone else. Yeah, Disney especially. Uh, nice production business you got there, Georgia. It'd be a shame to see something happen to it. Walt, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining me uh, on Fort Knox. And of course, everybody out there, you can follow Walt on Twitter, at Walt Mossberg. And that'll do it for Fort Knox this week. We're off next week, but be sure to tune in June 12th for another episode. See you then. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.